Section 3 of Ancient Ideals in Modern Life Four Lectures This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Sushil C. Ancient Ideals in Modern Life Four Lectures by Annie Besant Section 3 Lecture 1, Part 2 the four ashramas. A life which is well ordered from beginning to end, that is what is implied in the phrase the four ashramas. Two of them, namely that of the student and that of the householder, these two may be said to represent, in the life of an individual, that outward going energy which carries the jiva into what we call the pravriti marga, the great path of action along which the world rolls and which each individual man treads within the limit of a life in his own little way. The life of the student and the life of the householder, these form the pravritti marga of the individual. The two later stages, the life of the vanaprastha and that of the sannyasi, these are the stages of withdrawal from the world and may be said to represent the nivritti marga in the life of the individual. It is well to recognize this, so as to have an orderly view of life. So wisely did the ancient ones mark out the road along which a man should tread, that any man who takes this plan of life, divided into four stages, will find his outgoing and indrawing energies rightly balanced. First, the student stage, properly lived and worthily carried out. Then, the householder stage, with all its busy activity in every direction of worldly business. Then the gradual withdrawal from activity, the turning inward, the life of comparative seclusion, of prayer and of meditation, of giving of wise counsel to the younger generation engaged in worldly activities, and then, for some at least, the life of complete renunciation. Any man who takes this plan of life and lives it out will find that he cannot have a life which should be more wisely ordered, which should be made better than that in which to spend his days from birth to death. This is not an ideal for one nation only, but for all nations, not for one time, but for all times. One half of the life active and stirring, the other half quiet, self-controlled and self-contained. In the East and in the West alike, this ancient ideal of a well-ordered life might well be revived, might well be again practiced, and then we should not see on the one hand the pitiable spectacle of boys thrown into the life of the householder before the time has come, and on the other hand the equally pitiable spectacle of the old man whose heart should be turned to the higher life, still grasping money and power until death wrenches away what he will not voluntarily lose. Let us take the four stages in order and consider each. First, the student life. What was the ideal of the past? That you may read in detail in your books. Here I shall outline it only. The boy was placed in the hands of his teacher to be trained and educated on every side of his nature. The education given to him was one which drew out his powers in the four great factors which form the human constitution. First, we always read of boys 
that they were versed in the Vedas. The boys were taught religion. They were trained in the sacred literature of their faith and in the actual daily practice of their religious ceremonies. Thus, we find that Ramachandra was not only thoroughly trained in the knowledge of the scriptures, but also that he performed his sandhya, morning and evening, and was thus trained in the outer religious duties as well as in sacred learning, both being necessary for the evolution of spirituality. You know how, under the wise hands of his teacher, he learned the great science of the self, the secret of peace, and how his religious nature was trained and developed. He who needed no education, save for the instruction that his example might give as to how the young should be trained. That is the first note of ancient education. The next point is that the boys were trained in morality. The moral nature was trained as well as the spiritual. They were taught to be obedient, reverent, truthful, brave, courageous, to love and respect their parents and teachers, to be unselfish, to concern themselves with the welfare of those around them. He was intent on the welfare of others. That is given as the crown of the moral education of the boy. In the third place, the intellect was trained. The boys were taught the different branches of science and instructed in various kinds of theoretical and practical knowledge. Intelligence, the third part of human nature, received its proper training along with the spiritual and the moral. Lastly, the body was trained. The physical part received due attention. They were taught games and manly exercises, to ride, to drive, to manage their own bodies and the bodies of the animals who served the needs of man. Thus, the education given was all-round education. Every part of man's nature received its proper training. The result was that when the boys went out into the world, they went out ready to play their parts as members of a great state as citizens of a great nation, highly pious, moral, learned, and strong. These four great characteristics marked the result of education in ancient India. What do we find in modern India? An education directed to one part of the boy's nature only, developing the intelligence, training the intellect, but leaving entirely on one side the spiritual nature and the moral or emotional nature disregarded. The education, as now given, disregards for the most part the physical nature also, centering itself on the growth of intelligence, on the development of intellect alone. Even that, I may say in passing, is not done in the best possible way. Such an education as that can never build up a true man of the world, able to discharge his duties in the world. Only one part of him has been developed. Only one quarter of his whole nature has been trained. Moral character has been neglected. Spirituality has been ignored. Body has been left weak, overstrained, overworked. What sort of a nation can you have where the education given to its young is but one quarter of what it should be? One fourth only given, and that too, imperfectly and inadequately. What is the result? You get plenty of clever men, but for the most part they are selfish, thinking only of their own aims, 
each man fighting for his own hand, careless of the welfare of the nation as a whole, gaining for himself or for his family, caring not how others suffer, provided that he succeeds, looking on with cold and indifferent eyes at all wrongs perpetrated around him, his heart not moved with sympathy for the trouble and the misery of the people. He is a man developed in intelligence, but lacking in character, in self-respect, in public spirit, in straightforward speaking of truth, in uprightness of words and life. That is the result we see around us, the result of the neglect of religion and of morality. How many men today are intent upon the welfare of others, forgetful of their own success? How many realize that no man can truly succeed unless he raises others with him at the same time? How many remember that there is only one life, that the man who tries to wrench himself away from it in selfishness and indifference only succeeds in shutting out much of the life from himself, and that the wall that he builds to exclude his neighbor from himself excludes himself from the life that flows around him? What are we then to do? to do practically and not in theory only, not leaving for the future that work which must be done now. As you know, the attempt to bring back the ancient ideal is already being made in your midst. This very college, in the hall of which I am now speaking, is the work of those who are vowed to the restoration of the ancient type of education, of that fourfold training of the nature, which alone can build up the India of the future. Though not seeking to reproduce entirely the old models, it is the ideal that we must see and that we must reproduce in modern garb, adapting it to the times. Would it surprise you to know that in the English nation, this fourfold education is even now being given in the public schools and universities? If you go to any English public school, you will find that it begins its work every day with the worship of God and the reading of Christian scriptures. Every boy is taught to worship and is trained in definite moral ideals. You will find that not only is religion thus taught along with morality, but that a good physical training is also given and insisted upon in the great public schools. Every boy is made to play, to exercise his body, to work his limbs and strengthen his muscles. And if you go to Harrow, Eton, Rugby or Winchester, you will find the fourfold education there, though of course on Christian lines. The old ideal is being worked out there in principle and the fundamental ground plan of the education is right and sound and it makes patriots as well as all-round developed men. While they nourish love of religion, they nourish patriotism at the same time. If you go to the Harrow School Chapel, you will find its walls decorated with brass plates bearing the names of old Harrow boys who have served their country well, so that when the boys worship God, they see before their eyes the names of the old Harrow boys who once sat where they sat, who as men have given up their lives in times of need for queen and country, who have died for fatherland, and who have held the name of England high among the nations. No boy can worship in that chapel without receiving some inspiration to heroic living, without welding his love of country into his religion. The boy's ideals are molded in this way and they grew up country-loving, 
patriotic, proud of their land, and so worthy to be citizens of their country. We must revive this education here. How is this to be done? Is it to be done by 40 or 50 people like ourselves, who are weak in number and in intellectual power, if we be left unsupported? No. Do you not realize that this question is your question, not ours only? Your boys are the future citizens of India. What are you doing to educate them in the ancient ideals which will make them worthy citizens? It is not enough to applaud me. Are you working for this education? Are you giving it your time, your labor, as you would give them to some object which would go to make your own happiness? If you do not do that, what right have you to cheer when other people work and give mere empty applause? With regard to this education, I have somewhat more to say. And here comes a point for which I ask your careful, your thoughtful attention. I find when I read the old scriptures that during the period of student life, the student was always under the vow of brahmacharya. I find that every student was under that vow of virginity, of absolute celibacy, and until the student period was over, he was not permitted to enter the household life. 36, 18 or 9 years, these are the periods given for the student life. During that period, absolute celibacy was imposed upon the student. Until that period was over, he was not allowed to take a wife, and we often read of a man as a warrior before he became a husband. What has become of that old ideal in modern India? Boys in school are found to be fathers of children. Boys who have not yet even passed into college are found with a baby at home, a child the son of a child. It is utterly against the old ideals. It is destructive of India's life. What is the result? That a boy at the end of his college life is often weak in body, his nervous system is weakened, his brain power is exhausted and he is a wreck physically when he ought to be in the full flush and vigour of manhood. The pressure of modern education puts a heavy strain upon him, and then, added to that, are the duties of the husband, the responsibility of the father. My brothers, it is not right. It means the ruin of India. You find yourselves old when you ought to be but middle age. Do you not see that you are not what you should be? Do you not see that the brain does not and cannot bear the tremendous strain put upon it? Do you not see that the stature of Indians is growing less? Where the marriages are the earliest, there the stature is the lowest, and it is getting worse and worse. In some parts of India, the marrying of a baby in the cradle is permitted, and this is followed by very early parenthood. Is that a part of India's life as it was meant to be moulded by the great gods who gave their laws through ancient legislators? This is a question, the answer to which is in your own hands. The difficulty we know well enough. For a man who dares to act according to the ancient ideals will find himself surrounded by hundreds of unkind critics, men who have not the courage to act although in their hearts often longing for 
and desiring change. How many fathers have told me, Yes, we know that it is necessary, but how few have the courage to act upon their opinion and face the social difficulties that action would bring. Yet, only by such courage are great changes made and nations redeemed. We have come down through cowardice. We must mount through courage. We have become degraded through ignorance. We must rise again by education and restoring the old ideals. If some of you have the courage to say, we will not act against the ancient rules, we will not do that which we know to be wrong morally and to be evil physically. And if you will therefore make the marriage period later, no matter who may oppose, then you will begin to take the first practical step towards the training of a stronger, manlier and more vigorous race. I am not asking you to throw off the old customs and to adopt new ones as some others have advised. I am asking you to restore the old. And I suggest as a step that the first marriage of a girl might be at 14 and of a boy at 18 and the second actual marriage two years later for both. If this rule were followed, you would soon see the effects in the strengthening of the race. I do most earnestly hope that we may begin to set this example gradually in this school and college. We cannot make the full change back to the old ideal at once, but I do trust that we may be able gradually to work towards the ancient ideal and thus may set an example which all lovers of India will venture to follow, that we may strike the key note of a better physical future for India and build up a stronger manhood. After the student age was accomplished and the boy had grown to manhood, then he had to enter upon household life. What influence that household life has upon the evolution of character, you must know if you realize its intention. It is the great school of unselfishness, of temperance, of learning to help the weak, of learning self-sacrifice in the easiest way where love leads to sacrifice and rewards it as it is made. The love of husband and wife, the purest and noblest of earthly feelings, nearest the love of the soul to God himself, the love of father for children, of children for father, with the protection given on the one side and the gratitude and veneration given on the other. These are the household educators of the soul. It is said truly, that all other ashramas take refuge in this as their strong support. Learning to be detached in the middle of attachment, learning the lesson of chastity where all power of enjoyment is held. These are some of the lessons of family life. But how much change is wanted if the old beautiful ideal is to shine out clearly? On this I shall have to speak more when I come to deal with India's womanhood. There is no ideal of marriage like the Indian ideal. Only that ideal is rarely found fulfilled today. Consider the father and the children. Is the ideal of that relationship carried out in modern India? Is not there too much reserve on one side and too much timidity on the other? Is not the relationship of father and son too often lacking in frank confidence on the side of the son? Do the fathers think enough of the happiness 
and amusement of the sun, making the home life bright and attractive? Are they not too often self-centered and indifferent to the wants of the sons? Too forgetful of the cravings of youth, the boy is often too shy, alas, to speak to the father, and so the son goes out and finds amusement hand in hand with vice, where he ought to have found it with his father's sympathy, and so hand in hand with virtue. Indian boys too often go astray because of the want of sympathy and frank friendships with their parents. By the parents, laying all stress on authority and little stress on tenderness. Boys need tenderness and sympathy and loving guidance in the hot days of youth. I say this because boys sometimes come to me with complaints on their lips that their home life is so dull and dreary that they long to get away from it. Authority is too stringent and too unsympathetic and hence a tendency in sons to rebel. Where the sons show rebellion, the father is often far more to be blamed than the son. It is the lack of sympathy with the impulses and cravings of youth that often leads to revolt. The father's lack of tenderness and sympathy has as its inevitable result the rebellion of the son, not always expressed, but nonetheless dangerous. The father ought to be his truest friend, his dearest sympathizer, his most loving counsellor, and where the son finds his father to be such, that son is never rebellious. When we find trouble in the home, we must look for its cause to the superior rather than to the inferior. Most breaches in relationship begin in the fault of the higher and not in that of the lower. When the higher fails in his duty, it is then that the lower begins to fail also. It is a matter of each man to think out for himself, for the ideal is where the father is his son's best friend and the son is the father's most loved companion. Let everyone see how far this is true in his own home. There is a fatherly love where uttermost tenderness meets folly and transgression and redeems them by its divine force. If the true household life could be restored, then the active life in the world will be led as it should be and we shall see everywhere the ancient models of true grihastha. Then will be seen at the end of household life a readiness to pass on into the next stage where active life is given up and the life of religious meditation is carried on. How shall we adapt the vanaprastha stage to modern life? It is scarcely in accordance with the modern idea to go into a jungle to take refuge in a cave in order to spend in seclusion the latter years of life. Modern civilization trains men in a way which scarcely leaves them fit to take to that actual mode of life. So complex have grown men's wants in modern times. But might it not be possible for the elders among us to gradually let go all money-making, to let go all household authority, to let go all business and the taking of an active part in life, letting the younger ones take their place in these respects? Can they not turn to the Nivriti Marga? Might it not be that they should pass into a life of quiet and dignified partial seclusion, where their lives might be chiefly given to worship, meditation, thought and development of the higher nature, and where they would always be available as the wisest of counsellors, rich in life's experience, and all the better counsellors, because their personal interest had gone 
in the matters on which they gave counsel, and thus the advice would be free from prejudice and bias. Would not India be the richer if the old men performed that part of their duty, if, withdrawing from activity, they became the guides and advisors of the young, trusted and loved because they had experience and wisdom, and were willing to give them to the young? Would not the re-establishment of that ashrama be a great blessing in modern life? The last stage of sannyasa needs such high spiritual development that few probably would be able to pass into it. But if that is not now quite possible, it would become possible a few generations hence, when the general level of spirituality had risen under the right living of the three preceding ashramas. As the name of sannyasi is common enough in modern India, it may be well to say here that household life is a stage which very few can afford to avoid. So important is it as a spiritual school. Wisely did the Indian sages prescribe it as a well-nigh universal obligation. For few and far between are those who can lead the life of the true sannyasi, even in old age, and still fewer are those who can safely embrace it in youth. It is true that there is no fairer ideal than that of the Bala Yogi, the spotless Kumara, the boy saint. When a great soul incarnates for the helping of the world, he may lead the ascetic life from childhood. But too many lads and young men hastily take the garb of the sadhu in modern days, allured by its outer freedom and absence of care and responsibility, adopting it in order to avoid burden and not in order to bear a heavier one. Robust and lazy, such men swarm over the country by thousands, living on the earnings of others and giving nothing back in benefit to the community, too often profligate, taking advantage of their sacred garb to corrupt and lead astray, sensualists, not ascetics, luxurious, not self-controlled. The true sannyasi is of priceless value, and the poorest may rejoice to share with him his scanty meal. His spiritual value outweighs a millionfold any physical need he may have. His purity and devotion still purify the atmosphere and preserve spirituality from perishing outright. But the sadhus who are vicious and lazy, useless alike to the gods and to men, those shame the old ideal and turn men's hearts against the very name of sannyasa. For the young men, then, except in rare cases, the life of the household with its compulsory responsibilities and inevitable burdens, through these a man learns to rule himself, to master his lower nature, and then he can be free without danger to himself and to the community. The great ideals of the past, adapted to the present and worked out in modern India, would spread from India to other nations of the world, and would gradually mould them into the same rational, wholesome method of living. And thus, the whole world would be changed and carried on. We should gradually see in the Western world as well the purity of youth, the unselfish, generous life of the householder, replacing the competitive ideals of modern civilization. We should see the old men retiring and becoming counsellors and guides of families, and a few here and there showing the great ideal of complete renunciation, of utter indifference to all that the world can give.
Is it not worthwhile to rebuild that ideal here, where its roots are still struck, and where men's hearts still cherish it, and thus give to the world a bright object lesson of human life, led in a reasonable spiritual fashion, of every part of man developed in its place and used for the good of community? That is the thought that I would ask you to take away from this first of our evenings together. Study your own practical daily life and see where it fails. And when you have seen this, then steadily walk back along the road which will bring the ancient ideal back amongst us as a living fact. Do not act impulsively, but carefully think out the question and when you have thought it out, then act. Do not be content with idle dreaming. Do not be content with simple aspiration and pious hope. Do not say, we hope that in the future, India will go along these lines, but rather say, by the blessings of the gods, India, which is ourselves, shall enter upon these lines in the persons of us, her living sons. We shall take these little boys who are the citizens of the future India and educate them upon ancient models, so that they shall be trained as India's boys would be. We shall bring them under the influence of the old inspiration, so that when they become heads of households, they shall be examples of what Indian husbands and fathers should be. We will hold up before them the ideal of honoured old age, respected, loved, reverenced by all. In the plastic years of youth, we shall hold up this ideal before them. Nay, we shall ourselves live the ideal before them, imperfectly though it may be. They will work it out better. With better opportunities, they will produce nobler models, and the next generation will be higher still, and the generation succeeding it will be loftier still. And thus, a new India will be built up, generation after generation, but the foundation shall be laid now, without delay, without putting it off to the future. We will lay the foundation, we, the living people of modern India, without shrinking from what it costs us. We will lay the foundation, and on that our boys shall build, and on their work our grandchildren shall build, and on that again our great-grandchildren, and thus shall be made a noble, purer, and more spiritual India. Such an India will be fit to be the spiritual teacher of all nations. Such an India will be the Brahmana of humanity, her voice the voice of the gods. That is the glorious ideal of which I call you to lay the foundation. Set you firm the stones on which the edifice shall rest, and they who come after us shall build the temple above them. End of section 3